Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. We are back with part 32 of our podcast. We will continue our discussion of Isaiah, but this time we're looking at a very important theme in the text. The Christian fixation with combing Isaiah, looking for passages to put to messianic purpose, causes many readers to overlook or misinterpret much of what is happening in the first 39 chapters that scholars call First Isaiah. For those who soldier on and read each of these first chapters, uh, you are subjected to a nearly endless stream of predictions of doom, destruction, mayhem, and castigation of those whom the prophet Isaiah believed were responsible for Judah's troubles, that is, the idle rich, those who prey on the poor and the vulnerable, a corrupt legal system, and a feckless foreign policy and political machine that, in Isaiah's view, was incapable of competent governance. Worse, in his eyes, was their refusal to trust in God, who, according to the covenants by which Judah defined herself, would see to the salvation of Judah. I like to call First Isaiah the work of the B source, where B stands for buzzkill. Uh, there was some controversy even in Isaiah's day as to whether those covenant promises possession of the land of Canaan, Jerusalem as a holy eternal city, uh, the protection of the house of David as a ruling dynasty, etc., whether those covenants were conditional or unconditional. Some historians have argued that these covenantal assurances prompted reckless behavior on the part of the Jewish leaders, thinking that God would bail them out of any tight jams they created for themselves. It does seem odd that they would refuse to trust in God when things got scary, while simultaneously leaning on the existence of covenants as a crutch for nationalist bravado. But it does sound eminently consistent with human nature. The two Israelite kingdoms did not survive the Assyrian onslaught. The north kingdom of Israel was destroyed, Samaria was sacked, and her population deported, never to be seen again. Judah was reduced by the Assyrians a couple of decades later to Jerusalem and only Jerusalem. That city only survived by what could be taken for miraculous deliverance. Assyria herself met her end at the hands of a coalition between the Medes and the Babylonians, which was almost universally regarded as cause for celebration. Gradually, as Judah's rulership grew more and more corrupt, as the heads that wore the crown sat ever more uneasily, an ill-conceived and ill-advised rebellion brought the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem in 598 BCE and again in 587. The city was destroyed, her walls were pulled down, the temple destroyed, her best and brightest packed off to Babylon. All that remained were a few ragged refugees lurking among the ruins. Some Jews fled north to live with a motley mix of other peoples in Samaria. 
And into this world comes the nameless prophet we call Second Isaiah. This prophet is writing in Babylon shortly before it falls into the hands of the Persians under Cyrus the Great. We know almost nothing about him. The only clear personal reference we have is his calling, which is given in chapter 40, verses 6 and 7, and it looks and sounds much like other prophetic callings we've seen before. Second Isaiah does see himself as a successor to the pre-exilic prophets, with one very important difference. Where the others preached doom and destruction, Second Isaiah preaches one thing and one thing only, salvation. One curiosity is that he frequently refers to events that are meant to be in the future in the perfect tense. This appears to be deliberate. It is as if God has already decided what will happen and how he will act. It's just a matter of time catching up with those decisions. We get almost nothing in the way of references to outside events, no mention of battles or wars or other such things, nothing addressed to individuals or officials of the state, the state uh, except for uh, some references to the Persian emperor Cyrus. Second Isaiah is also a lot more monotheistic in the sense that Yahweh is the only God who has proven the ability to actually act in history based on the predicted fall of Jerusalem. There's also a more careful description of deity to make sure that it is described solely in monotheistic terms. At times it even pushes back a little at some of the less than pure monotheism in 1st Isaiah. The language of 2nd Isaiah is also deeply inf informed by the Psalter. Uh, he copies the language and the diction of Psalms frequently. Second Isaiah also considers the Exodus to be the most important event in the history of Judaism, its defining moment. He sees the events around him as a second Exodus, playing out in which God's deliverance will return his people to their land, and so it is not surprising that he tends to view the events around him through that lens. Just as God used human agents to bring Judah to this low point in her history, this time there will be a human agent, as before, as an instrument of God's will to lift her up. Where before it was Assyrian and Babylon that served as agents of punishment, this time it is Cyrus. However, this new instrument is not uh, an agent of correction and destruction, but salvation. In the past, prophets often spoke of the deliverance of Israel from her enemies in military terms. Second Isaiah introduces something we have not seen in prophets before, and that is salvation in strictly non-military terms. As if to nail down that shift, Second Isaiah has moved the arena within which God saves from the battlefield to the courtroom. We will see that Second Isaiah makes frequent use of court speech, the lawsuit, if you will. This is a striking innovation, and unlike anything we have seen before, however, given that Judah no longer has a government, let alone an army, it makes a kind of hard sense. The halls of judgment are the only places where Israel and Judah can find redress. 
What is particularly striking about Second Isaiah is how it begins. As I mentioned above, First Isaiah is about suffering, punishment, God's poor people reduced to a fragment of what they were, exposed, helpless, a remnant. Images of humiliation, slaughter, privations, famine, and pride brought down to the dust predominate every aspect of Isaiah's message to prostrate Judah, consigned to exile in Babylon. And then come the opening words of chapter 40, generally accepted as the beginning of Second Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I resort to the King James Version here instead of the New Revised Standard Version I usually prefer for the simple reason that the language, even if it is not as technically precise as the NRSV, is perfect. From here out, the message is one of comfort, of reconciliation, of salvation. It's easy to sum up the message of Deutero-Isaiah as salvation, but that glosses over the sheer scope of putting this ecclesiastical Humpty Dumpty back together again. One way that it does this is to demonstrate the superiority of Yahweh over other gods. You have to recall the circumstances at this point to understand what an audacious thing is going on here. As we've said before, the setting of Deutero-Isaiah is Babylon, and the outward manifestations of Yahweh's strength are gone. No temple, no people, 
Judah is surrounded instead by signs and indications of the greatness of the gods of Babylon, who, in the general belief system of the time, demonstrated their superiority over Yahweh by destroying Yahweh's city and capturing his people. The city was filled with shrines, temples, artworks, and rituals, all extolling the power of these Babylonian gods. What, if anything, could a proponent of Yahweh point to by way of response? Deutero-Isaiah uses the form of a rib or lawsuit, uh, when we see phrases like, let them approach, or let them uh, speak, let us draw together for judgment, we are figuratively in the courtroom. This is where many complaints of the prophets are raised, some against the Babylonians, but also some against Yahweh himself. Note that these are not criminal cases in which one side must face trial for crimes or offenses, but civil cases. The matter usually turns on a claim to be judged, true or false. Early on, such as in chapter 41, the claim is of divinity, whether it belongs to the gods of the nations or to Yahweh. Uh, the chapter recognizes the existence of other gods. Indeed, if it didn't, summoning them to the court wouldn't make any sense. But who is truly divine? It's also possible that the author is invoking the idea of a heavenly court that, in some mythologies, including that of Babylon, also served as a court of law. The author's case rests on the ability of Yahweh to act in history, not just in a casual day-to-day -day fashion, but demonstrating consistent control over its long arc. This is a point that Deutero-Isaiah returns to again and again as proof of the superiority of Yahweh over other gods, as well as his ability to save his own people. But all that being said, Isaiah also argues that Judah messed up big time. He makes it clear that while he is preaching a message of salvation, he nevertheless considers himself part of the pre-exilic tradition in which Israel and Judah were subjected to an incessant drumbeat of mostly prophecies of doom. He claims, along with First Isaiah, that the sacrificial practices of Israel were of no account. They had lost touch with reality. Now, the ascendancy of Yahweh over other gods also prompts an interesting diatribe against the gods of Babylon. Deutero-Isaiah attacks them at what he considers to be their weakest point, the fact that they are artifacts. The following is from chapters 40 and 41, juxtaposed in a very plausible reconstruction by Klaus Westermann uh, of an otherwise fairly confusing section. It goes like this. An idol, a workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. As a gift, one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will not rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. Each one helps the other, saying to one another, Take courage, and the artisan encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good and they fasten it with nails so that it cannot be moved. 
Deutero-Isaiah continues to draw a contrast, referring to events that greatly precede those of the fashioning of Babylon's gods. In fact, he invokes Abraham by name, which first Isaiah doesn't do, as a way of going way back before there was such a place as Babylon, let alone Babylon's gods. This passage also takes a very serious dig at the Babylonian gods in the sense that much of their religion is based on the theogony, or the origin or creation of the gods. It makes up a significant part of the Babylonian epic of creation, or Enuma Elish, for example. Just as a side note, I should mention that one of the great biblical scholars of the last century, Yehezkel Kaufman, pointed out that polytheistic gods are by nature not sovereign. They are subject to each other's whims. They exist in a magical realm that runs on a set of rules by which things get done, and the god's power derives from their ability to manipulate those rules of the magical substratum. Incidentally, humans can also do this if they have sufficient knowledge and can even bind the gods to their will. I also imagine that the dialogue uh, among the workers given here in the uh, passage I just quoted has the subtext of, be careful, don't break anything, implying that these gods must be secured and taken care of because they are fragile and therefore weak. If the supplicant who wants a god made for his household is poor, he needs to make sure his god does not rot. He, in effect, determines its destiny by picking sound wood. Westerman and others identify this as what scholars today call an oracle of salvation. These are often found near the end of psalms of personal lamentation, when the, so, when the tone suddenly changes from one of despair to assurance, even rejoicing that all will be well, that God has heard the lament. Liturgically, it is believed that this kind of oracle of salvation was pronounced by the priest as part of the, um, uh, the life setting of these psalms. Westerman further explains that this is new for the prophets, this uh, use of psalms of, um, of salvation, oracles of salvation. In the past, they were all about lamentation, not about salvific sayings. Uh, the role of the cult priest was to give salvific sayings, but Remember, the cultic priest and the prophets represented institutional religion and outside critics, respectively. Uh, Jeremiah 14 even states that God will not allow the prophet to invoke blessings on the people. Uh, quote, um, uh, verses 11 and 12, The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Although they fast, I do not hear their cry. Although they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I do not accept them. But by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, I consume them. However, here in the exile, with the institutional religion more or less gone, these two lines of spirituality come together and reunite under the prophetic mantle. It is easy at first glance to read this debate as a contest between polytheism and monotheism, and a number of scholars have done just that. Uh, Again, Westermann, he argues, quote, The point at issue is not an idea or concept of deity, but what comes about 
as the beginning of the oracle states expressly, what happens? The issue is not divinity per se, but Godhead giving evidence of itself in history, divinity that becomes effective as lordship over history. However, it is not the matter of acting in history alone. Other gods could claim as much. For instance, the god Nebo says in an oracle to Eshardon, uh, quote, I, even I, declare the future as the past, close quote. What distinguishes Yahweh is that he speaks, then acts just as he said he would, on spec as it were. But the sheer consistency of the actions of God in history over such a long stretch of time was something that had no parallel in either Egyptian or Babylonian religion, and it became a lifeline through which Yahweh saved himself in the eyes of his Jewish worshippers. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.